the new year, at times, when it comes to us, it's almost like bringing us an intervention. Some of us need it desperately. Some of us could use it mildly. But it's that, that phrase that says, hey, examine something for a moment. Stop and pause and look and see where you are. Address what needs to be done. And seek the help where help is needed. It's a wonderful time. It really is. But it also can be a difficult time. Because some of those things that we face in that intervention moment can leave us panicky. Can leave us a little scared. Can leave us uncertain. Can leave us confused about where to go next. What is the next step? This is not only in our personal life. Sometimes this is in our job. Sometimes this is in education. Sometimes this is with family. I know for myself and my leadership, I hope that I provide for you guys, it happens to be with church. So 2019 is around the corner. Do you guys know what that means for Eastgate? It means our church, as, as it's sat and been composed here in the Flint area, has existed for 65 years. 65 years. And I think about the history of it and, and the fact that I've gotten the joy of playing a part in that. I've, I've played the part of five years of that 65, and it's been incredible. But I know also in the moment where we say, all right, this is where we are, and we're looking at maybe numbers, whether it be attendance or giving. We're looking at enrollment. We're looking at how many seats are filled, how many people are sent. We start measuring all kinds of things, and we begin asking, all right, what needs to be different in year 65? But I think sometimes we also need to look ahead because when we have these new years, it not only makes us look at the one ahead, but it says, where do I want to be well beyond that? It seems to me that five years has flown by. It's been so fast. Like I've, I have cherished long-term, long-held memories that, that will never be left. But at the same time, it seems like it's just been a flash. And if five years can fly by that fast, where will Eastgate be at year 75 in 2029? I think if we want to know that, we've got to start making some decisions in year 65. If we have a great vision for year 75, what is going to be addressed now to get there? And what does the Bible tell us to do? So many churches, I think we get hung up on trying to follow the latest growth pattern, the latest trend. And, and there's nothing wrong with those elements. There's nothing wrong with seeking help and seeking tools and methods that will help not only invest scriptural truth in the people within your walls, but help you to serve beyond them. There's nothing wrong with those things at all. But if we get totally focused on those and so focused on a program or a tool, we might miss the mandate. We might miss the charge that is given to us by the Lord to go and make disciples to teach them all that he has commanded us for us to observe to baptize them in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit to go to all nations and to realize that that god has given us this charge with all the authority that exists in him in heaven and on earth he has it all and that he has promised never to leave us or forsake us we see the charge to be witnesses empowered by the Holy Spirit. We see the charge to tell people about the love of God. 
we see the charge that the church, according to the, according to the book of Ephesians, is that we are God's manifest instrument to make known the mysteries of the gospel. So while we could try to follow all these different patterns, I want to bring us back to just what does the Bible say that the church is meant to do that really, scripturally, you could have elements of it in other places, but it will never be the biblical, scriptural whole that God wants it to be without the church. And that is the area of corporate prayer, the area of gospel proclamation, and the area of biblical discipleship. And I I look forward and I hope that I am here with you celebrating on the 75th year, but I want to set some patterns and a vision for where we need to be. That over this next year and the years to come, I want us to invest desperately, not only in corporate prayer, but personal prayer. Not only in personal prayer, but corporate prayer. And so what are we going to do to help bring that? This year, we're going to have certain times where we teach on prayer. So if you're here as an attendee and you're wondering, what are these messages going to be out? We're going to be looking at the Word. We're always focusing on the Word. But there's going to be a time where we focus on teaching about prayer. We're going to work to incorporate that more in our classes. Not just, hey, can you pray for my my medical list? But what does it mean to adore Christ in our prayer? What does it mean to confess to Christ in our prayer? What does it mean to thank Him? And then in all those things, because we can trust Him with so much, then to come and say, and God, these are the cares that I have. I need to lay them before Your feet. Sometimes we go straight to the list, but we miss all the other things. I'm going to ask you to have an invitation to prayer. In fact, if you have a watch that has an alarm on it or a device, you can pull it out right now. I'm giving you permission. I would like to ask you this, because this is God's invitation to us. That because we want to see the harvest reach, because we want to see people come to know Christ. Not just so we can make our church a bigger name. That's not the whole purpose. It's so that they may know Christ, the largest of names. The name above all names. I'm going to give you the advice. I want you to set an alarm. It can be a silent vibrate alarm, if you will, because I want you to pray with me, and I'm committing to pray with you. At 10.02 every day, set an alarm at 10 a.m. That may be in the middle of your, if you work night shift, that might be while you're sleeping. I understand. And you can set 10.02 p.m. If you, if you have the night shift. But at 10.02 we're going to do what God has told us in Luke 2 to 10 to. And that is we see the harvest, is, the harvest is white and ready for laborers. That we seek the Lord to send out laborers, not including us. And I'm going to ask you at 10.02 to pray, God, help me not forget the harvest. Help me not forget my role. And Lord, I'm asking you to do what only you can to say. I'm inviting the church to pray along with me. On those times, we're going to have seasons of prayer where we set aside time to be focused as we fast for specific strategies that are going to come with gospel proclamation. In this year of intervention, we're going to have a time of renewed focus on evangelism. Every week we, pro- we proclaim the gospel here during the worship gathering, but I want to see it happen in our life groups. I want to see a renewed emphasis in our, in our WANA groups. I want to see a renewed emphasis when we're out beyond the walls and within. And so this is going to be a year for personal involvement for you not to only invite but to bring for you not to only give but to go for you not only to speak but to serve and and this is a part of our whole thing and they don't need to be separated out i'm not saying we're just going to serve but never say anything no we're going to say and serve we're going to serve and say i I don't want you to just invite I, i mean i want you to invite and say hey i know a place where you can go 
whether it be online or, or be with me or, or visit on your own time. But I want you to take the moment to say, I realize this is an investment of me to bring others alongside. And a year of impact where we're going to set aside specific times. We're going to invite evangelical speakers in. Not that the gospel doesn't, isn't powerful enough from any person an average Joe giving it. But every now and then there's a person that God gifts with the ability to speak God, the gospel in a way, speak the truth of salvation in a way that people just, the light bulb comes on, the heart is pricked, and they get it. God uses them. So we're inviting someone in the spring and someone in the fall for, if you want to call it a revival Sunday, you can call it a revival Sunday. But it's a gospel evangelism-focused Sunday. And we're going to have seasons of prayer as those approach. Because it is God that saves, not the person standing in the pulpit. Lastly, we're going to go back to see what the Bible says about the church's involvement in biblical discipleship. This is not just accountability. This is not just for prayer. This is so that our church will leave a legacy of people that are engaged in daily Bible reading. I don't want a church. I don't want to see a church that after 10 years is malnourished because they only take in from the Word one hour a week. But we want to see lives change. And the greatest tool that God has already provided for us to see lives change over and over and over again, every researcher that goes back to this measuring tool is daily biblical engagement. Why? Because you have spent time with Jesus. And as you get involved in the Word of God, you get to know the God of the Word. And you cannot help but have that rub off on you. It may leave you uncomfortable at moments, but it will bring you to Him. So we want to have engagement in Bible reading. If you're looking at the new year and saying, I need to spend daily time in the Word, please come talk to me. I have all kinds of tools that will help you if, if that's what you need. But we're also going to work at developing biblical literacy. Not only biblical reading, but biblical literacy. I love some of the things that we do, some of the ministries that we provide at this church. I love the fact that, that our children go through Awana and they memorize Scripture. They memorize books of the Bible. But one of the things that I love about that program is it helps them to be biblically literate. They're not just getting a topic of saying, well, this is where you go when you're sad, or this, those, that's not that those things are bad. But that they can say, I understand the narrative of the Bible. I understand where this all fits. And sometimes we think, oh, that's too big for kids. That's too big for teenagers. They're learning biology. They're learning chemistry and trigonometry and geometry and engineering and robotics. They're learning different parts of history, world history, U.S. history. They're learning all the grammatical nuances of the English language. And we think we have to repeat Jonah and the whale over and over again. No, let's teach them the Bible. Help them to be biblically literate. They can handle it. That's why we send them to school, because they can handle that. And let's be active, not only for them, but for us. Let's not just depend on it just to happen by osmosis, because I'll tell you this. I am the first to say that I spent the time I was in diapers in the nursery all the way to the time I graduated high school. And I knew some of the stories, but I was never discipled till I went to college. And I had someone sit down with me and walk me through it. Let's personally invest in this together. It's time to be brought to this closely. 
And we're going to engage in biblical discipleship. And this is where we really challenge one another to what are you learning? What are you hearing? What are you, how are you seeing God active in your life and sharpening one another? You're going to hear about the launch of discipleship groups, hopefully in the near future. And, and I hope to invite you to be a part of that and, and to be with men, sharpening men, women, sharpening women. And, and not that you can't do that in multiple groups. It just works better uh, whenever you have those groups that can be very open and honest with people that understand where they're coming from. But with the purpose of intentionally spending time in the Word, empowered by the Holy Spirit, engaging to preach the Gospel. These are the mandates of the church. That while you can do these things, you can worship in nature outside and have a fun powwow, you can fellowship with, with friends that know Jesus outside, you can serve alongside in a charity outside, but the church is the tool for corporate prayer, for evangelism to the world, and for biblical discipleship to pass on for generation to generation. And if we want to see something God-sized by 75, let's do what God has said we must do beginning in 65. We are going to help people to be a church where they know that when I come in, there's friendly, welcoming faces that I can belong because they prayed for me. They care about the gospel to me. They care about my knowledge of the Bible. We're going to teach people what it means to believe and, and, and show them that we're not just asking them to fill out a card, speak out a few words, and nod their head. We want them to know what trust and faith looks like. We're going to show them what it means to become a disciple. We're going to show them what it means to be sent because we're going to do our best to be the church. We're not doing this alone. We're doing it with the heart of God behind us, the Redeemer. Today we're talking about intervention, not only with where we need to be as we forecast this coming year as our church, the local church here in Flint, Michigan, Burton, I know we're in the suburb, but we are also looking at the model that God has provided as this Redeemer. I'm going to ask you to turn in in your copy of God's Word to Exodus chapter 14. We're going to be looking at the overarching story of, of Exodus 13 through 15, but we're going to be reading from 14 in a moment. This is on page 58 in the Pew Bible, if you would like to use that. Uh, it's also going to be on the screen behind us, but we also invite people to, to, to get into the Word themselves. And uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word uh, that you can read that's relatable to you, we, we thoroughly recommend this one. We recommend it so much that if you don't have one, you can have the one in the Pew. We believe that we want to get God's Word in people's hands, but ultimately in their heart. And so it's not just for Pew decoration. It's not just for Sunday. Once again, we want people to have a daily diet. That's a gift from us to you. We can easily replace that pew Bible um, and so that it can go to other people as well. But we're going to stand together and we're going to see how God intervenes as the Redeemer in the lives of His people. We're going to read from chapter 14. The first 14 verses should give us some details. Uh, Where I'd read the whole chapter, you might be saying my legs are about to give out, but we are going to look at the whole chapter. But here's what it says. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pi-Herahoth, between Migdal and the sea. You must camp in front of Belzephon, facing it by the sea. Pharaoh will say to the Israelites, say of the Israelites, excuse me, they are wandering around the land in confusion. The wilderness has boxed them in. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. 
Then they will, then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So, the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about the people and said, what have we done? We have leased Israel from serving us. So he got his chariot ready and took his troops with him. And he took 600 of the best chariots and all the rest of the chariots of Egypt with officers in each one. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out defiantly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his army, his men, chased after them and caught up with them as they camped by the sea in Pi-Herahoth in front of Belsaphon. And as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians coming after them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt to leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You must be quiet. Let's pray. Lord God, today as we have read from Your Word, may we understand that it is Your Word. It is Your gift to us. It is Your spoken truth to us. It is what we need so desperately to hear from You. It is what applies to us when it comes to knowing you, what you've said and what you've done. And so, God, help us to hear from you today. May we all be taught from you and see that you are the Redeemer who, in fact, intervenes in the life of his people and extends an invitation for us to be redeemed. In Jesus' name, amen. So you may be seated. Now, every time we get into God's Word, we want to help people to to have a greater understanding of Scripture because we understand that by Bible engagement, is where life change happens because we understand, again, what it's saying. We begin studying and seeing what it means and, it's, it, and how God brought this about in his, his place in history. Then we begin seeing the significance from that meaning and how it applies with us even today. And then we've begged the question, will I trust and follow what God has provided? Now here we have the author, Moses, who is recording this history, these first five books of the Bible, Moses is the, the, the pinning author. God is the inspiration author of these, 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 this message to the people of Israel about their deliverance from Egypt and God's expectation to them. So it's written to the people of Israel, but it's preserved for the world. And it gives us a picture of how God redeems. And, and by doing so, it shows us a little bit more of who he is. And then it tells us what he has said and what he expects. That it delivers first. This is how God has shown grace to you in the beginning. Before you ever deserved anything, God is already extending grace. And now as a receiver of it, as a recipient of it, this is what it means to live and be called by His name. To to be a follower of the Lord. And so when we look at this message particularly today in Exodus 13-15, through we have a particular aim from this. 
Not just the overall aim of these first five books of the Bible, but this aim of these chapters. And is that we would survey the Redeemer's intervention and set our trust in the redemption's invitation. And so we're going to survey this. And when you survey certain things, when you look, you start noticing the different places in the landscape. Whenever you're surveying, you see different things that may have been there at one time and are no longer there and things that are now there that weren't there before. And these things that we're going to see of God are attributes of Him. So there are things that are constant. They are unchangeable when it comes to the attributes of God. Because the God that we serve is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He has not changed. There is not a different God of the New Testament and a different God of the Old Testament. He is the same. So these attributes that we survey are lasting. They are impressionable and we need to see them. So the first attribute is that the Lord is steadfast. That He is faithful, He is good, He is perfection, and He maintains. He does not forsake. That God is constant God. What do we notice about that? In chapters 13, 17 through 14, 9. Well, one of the things we notice is God's comprehension. God's comprehension. Uh, I want you to notice the route that God has His people to take here. It's a route that takes them down towards uh, the Mount Sinai, down towards the sea, Instead of going up by the Mediterranean Sea, which was the well-traveled highway. Why did God want them to do that? Well, chapter 13 tells us that they will run into these other tribes, these other peoples. They will face war and they will be so scared, so terrified that they will turn back immediately. God already knows the patterns of man's heart before they ever make that decision. And so God in His comprehension, God in His wisdom, God in His knowledge and intellect... He decides a route for them that instead of taking about three weeks for them to get, uh, excuse me, two months, for them to get from Egypt to Israel, it's going to take them 40 years. Now, some of that is also, if you know this narrative, you say, well, they rebelled and God made them wander for 40 years. Yes, that's true. But God in his wisdom already knows everything well in advance. It's amazing. God has a comprehension far beyond ours. But so many times, here's what I think. Here's what I've seen to be true in my own life. We get so fixated on, okay, I'm here at A. I've got to get to B. Give me the quick route, God. Give me the shortcut. Give me the quick answer. I want that. Easiest way possible. When God, in His comprehension, is not merely focused on the A point to B point, God is focused on the entire alphabet that He has written for our life, the A to Z. And He says, yeah, I've got to get you to Z, which is ultimately the promised land of heaven, but I am fixated on B, C, D, E, F, G, all of it. I I am the Alpha and the Omega. I have it all under wraps, under plans. Trust my comprehension. Even though it doesn't make sense, for the slaves, they would even know, why are we not going the, the E-way? Why are we taking the backwoods trail? Because God says, my comprehension, my might is greater. Now, I'll be honest. I try to be honest every week. Uh, sometimes I give you a little glimpse further into my history, not just you know what I know about the Bible, but just personal journey. Um, when I was in college, um, I knew everything. And... Uh, I've never been smarter than I was when I was 18 to 20 um, at any point in my life. But uh, 
There was a time where I could not even fathom ever being a pastor. Ever. You may think, yes, that's what he does. It's probably like came out preaching from the womb. Praise the Lord. You know, that kind of thing. That was, that was not me. Um, I could not fathom being a pastor. In fact, what I really felt led to do when I felt God was calling me into ministry was to be a college campus ministry director. Like something with Baptist Student Union or, or Campus Crusade or, or uh, uh, Challenge or something like that. One of those areas. I, I thought that was the direction God was going to take me because I, I just couldn't picture being a pastor uh, at all. I, I, I didn't think God had that even on the radar for me. Because I didn't feel like I was very good at public speaking and, and it, at all. But I thought, I really like college students. I liked being one. So definitely I would like working with them for the rest of my life. And the opportunity was kind of seeming to provide for itself as I was serving as an intern at this college ministry. And I was doing things. I was uh, learning how to, the paperwork goes, how the digital stuff goes, how to plan things. I mean, it was like everything was coming into place. And the assistant director's job was opening up. And I thought, oh, okay, I'm where I need to be. I can probably still go to seminary and get the things that I need there, but this will be where I go, and then I'll end up transferring and being a a director. Nope. Didn't happen. Got pulled into the office one day. He says, hey, I really appreciate everything you've been doing, and and it's just great, but I just want to let you know this assistant director has opened up, and I'm I'm choosing uh, this person over here. And I'm like, you didn't even go to school here. What's going on? And I, I really got down in the dumps. I was, I was really a miserable little brute at that moment. Like, God, it seems like everything's supposed to be adding up. Why is this not happening? Because God says, I have a wisdom and a comprehension far beyond that you ever know that is more focused on my, than, that is less focused on the A to B than the A to Z. I have a plan for you. And the Lord is steadfast. He is not forsake us. He does not leave us. And sometimes we need to say, God, I have to step back and understand that you have a greater plan. I have to be like Joseph, who, when his brothers were terrified of him, says, I know that the disasters that my life faced, you planned evil against me, but God planned it for good for the saving of many. We need to be like what the words of Isaiah prophesied about the declaration of the Lord, that God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. As heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. We need to be have an understanding like Paul did that talks about that when we, when we see the, the difficult moments that we know all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose so that we might be conformed to the image of His Son. We need to understand God's comprehension and that God is steadfast in what He knows. We need to understand God's commitment. In chapter 13, verse 19, one of those little parts of the story that you may miss at times is that in the middle of that Big parade, that massive exodus of people. By the way, that's why it's called exodus. It's a massive exodus of people. The more you know. And uh, here is God's commitment to Joseph. He said that whenever he was dying in the land of Egypt, 400 years before they ever exited out, Joseph told his people, his family, his relatives, those who were being uh, multitudes multiplied, He says, when God brings you up out of this land, you're going to take my bones with you to this land that God has promised us. And it was a testimony that God, even 400 years after a person had died, God does not negate his promises. He is steadfast in his commitment. He is steadfast. 
And we have incredible promises to rest in ourselves. Think about the promises we have. That God will never leave us or forsake us. That God promises that one day He's going to bring about the reconciliation of this earth. All the things that we see, all the beautiful and the broken, God is going to restore it all to perfection one day. God has promised restoration in heaven. That that this life is eternal. God has promised redemption for life. And so as we see this commitment that God has made, He says, I have spoken and provided promises to you. We on our behalf should say, well, then if that's true, and I know this to be true because you've said it's true, and you, God, are steadfast and you never lie, then I need to be focused on daily time with you to say, God, as I read your word and I look at my life and I survey it, I want to know where your activity is in this. I, I want to trust you because you've already made a commitment to you and you never fail those. I want to see what you're like so I'll know what to be like in this moment as someone that bears your image. I want to know what you're doing so I can be obedient to say wherever you lead, I will go. Because you, God, are steadfast in your commitment. We see God is steadfast also in His companionship. Chapter 13, verses 20-22, through 22, one of the things you'll notice is God walked with them in a way that was very distinct. During the daytime, they would follow Him. And this happened for 40 years. They followed him as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. In the, in the middle of that, the Bible tells us that it is a miraculous presence of God dwelling with his people. This was not just some happenstance cloud. Once again, it lasted for 40 years. Most of the clouds I know, I kind of see, and then in the next few minutes I can look up, oh, where to go? Because uh, we live in Michigan and you, you, know, it, you never know what the sky is going to do. But... This is what God provided as a provision for them, His companionship with His people. Now, I think many people, they really want the cloud type of God. God, put a cloud over the school I'm supposed to go to. God, put a cloud over the job I'm supposed to take or, or apply for. Or God, put a cloud over the person I'm supposed to marry. Or, or, or God, put a cloud on this, this little bubble. Is this what I'm supposed to be obeying in whenever the offering plates pass? Put a little cloud over it if I'm supposed to give today. Uh, I don't know. We want a cloud type God. But that is not what God has offered us. In fact, what God has offered us is greater than a cloud. We may think, well, it would be miraculous to see this pillar of fire burning at night. I'll admit that would be pretty cool. I'll just be to say, if that could be in my backyard, I'd be like, fire pillar! Yes, it's God! That would be awesome. It would be. But the Bible tells us we have something greater. Because the people of Israel, they had God with them dwelling with them, among them, in the the camp. But because of Christ, we don't just have God with us. We have God in us. We have Christ in us, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27 tells us. We we have the Spirit of truth truth dwelling and remaining in us, being with us, according to John 14.17. That God doesn't choose just to be with us in our proximity. He says, I choose to be in you, never leaving you. We have something greater. We don't need a cloud. We have God saying, I am with you wherever. But are you listening to my companionship? We also have God in His comparison. That God's glory is never diminished. It is steadfast. 
We see the glorious nature of God on display when he talks about what's going to happen in, in chapter 14, verses 1 through 9, that everything he is doing, make no mistake, he says in verse 4, I will receive glory by the means of Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. That everything he did in this moment is bringing back the steadfast point. God's glory will never be diminished. Ever. It will never be tarnished. It will never be muddied. It will never be made messy. It will never be broken. It will never be less than. God lets us know there is no one compared to Him. And He does it by testimony after testimony and display of the work of His hands. He says this is the entirety of this experience. It's the whole Red Sea moment. It's not so that we can be like, ooh, ah, look what the Israelites did. They kind of walked through the, the middle and the water and all that and the big stick that Moses waved and the, you know, be still, you know, that kind of thing. That's not what it's about. It's that God is God. And there is no one like Him. And there will never be because God is steadfast in who He is. Second intervention attribute. You say, well, there was a bunch of them right there. Uh, is this, that the Lord is not only steadfast, but the Lord is salvation. On that day, the Israelites were going to see the, the very best of the best, the, the seals team, if you will, of the Egyptians. They were coming after them. These were the chariot warriors, the finest of the finest, the officers. They had um, incredible a foe. On any other day, if you were the enemy of Egypt, you didn't want to face them. But any day that God is on your side, there is no enemy that's greater. And so here, Moses, in the middle of seeing the Egyptians with their superior chariots, their superior soldiers, once again, the Israelites were not soldiers, they were slaves. They were people that made mud bricks. That's what they did. They had not been trained for warfare. They may have been strong, but they hadn't been trained. And here they are, first thing that they will have to face, first kind of test outside of slavery. Here they are, facing these superior enemy. But Moses, however, declares God's superior salvation plan. He tells them, do not be afraid. He tells them the battle is not yours. He tells them to stand still. He tells them to look and see the salvation of the Lord. He says, don't just close your eyes and pretend like, no, 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 I'm not watching you. This is not happening. No, open your eyes and see it going on. And to know that there is no one like the Lord. And then there's that miraculous parting of the waters. The One of the most significant, most remembered stories of the Old Testament times happens. Still cherished today as, as a miracle of miracles. Now, some people I know, they will say, well, I don't know if I can believe that the Red Seas parted and there was like a wall on the right and the left and the Israelites walked through. I don't know if I can believe that. I, I would hasten you. I, I, would, I would try to steer you in a correct direction. If you have a problem believing God can part the waters, that is a small miracle for God. And if you have a problem with believing that God can part the waters in the ways that He said He can, you're going to have a problem believing and trusting any other work and activity of faith in God from then on. Because if you think God can't move water, you definitely don't believe God can move stones. God can move walls. God can change hearts. It's going to be a hard thing for you. 
Seek and trust the Lord. And here's this miracle. It happens. But it's not just a miraculous activity on the Red Sea. It is a display of both justice and grace. It is a display that also gives us a picture of what baptism would look like. That, that we pass over from death to life as we trust God. And He takes us through the water as an activity. He says, I am the one who cleanses you, who saves you, has restores you. What are the things that God saves us from as, as, if He's the Lord of salvation? Well, He saves us from slavery, sin, and death. The whole story of Exodus is about God's redeeming a people called by His own name to save them from sin, slavery, and death. He rescues them. He saves them from sin by providing a lamb to cover over them with innocent blood so that when the death uh, the, the, the plague of death of the firstborn came by, it passed over them. That the, 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 the plague saw God's provided way of righteousness to the people in that moment. And it passed over their sin. They saved them from death because they were being killed off and their children were being murdered and drowned in the Nile River. By the way, that's a part of this justice story. It, it, it shows us that God saved them from slavery by by giving them value and purpose and calling them to be His own. He rescues them from bondage. But what you also see here, when God rescues from bondage, sometimes that bondage has layers. Sometimes we are a little bit too used to our slavishness, as Tim Keller would say. We remember what it means to be a slave. We kind of like that. It's, it's just a part of our routine. And while God redeems us positionally, that practical part, it's sometimes hard to shake. It's like, okay, peeling off the old man, it seems like. The new man's inside, but the old man's still covering the out. We struggle with that. And when we struggle with that, we, even though we're not slaves, we tend to still look and live like them. So we must recognize the slavishness of the soul. We must see that sin is meant to be put to death. We must not try to revert back to earning our own righteousness through a different way. We must deal with our old idols. We must see that when we're saved by God, we're justified. We are saved from the penalty of sin. We are sanctified. And each day as we grow with God, we're being delivered from the power of sin. And, and as we face heaven, one day we'll go to a place where we're saved from the even presence of sin. These are all a part of salvation, but God deals with it. He saves us to the utmost. But he also deals with the slavery part of our soul that tends to look back. It talks about how we are saved as we see that it is grace through faith. This is the difference here. Even in this narrative, even in this point of history, it tells us that the way of the Lord is different from all other belief systems. All other belief systems say work, earn, try, and maybe perhaps God will allow you to come into His presence. But the way of faith is a, is a God who opens and parts the seas, who takes something that looks utterly impossible to defeat, a superior enemy, and He says, simply follow me. I can imagine what it was like for some people. I, I, I wish I was there. I'd, I've seen the little TV shows and the movies. But you can imagine some people seeing this and their jaws just dropping. And they're like, let's go! Yeah! And they're just like looking around, like seeing the whales and all this. They're just running. And you can see some people, their, their act of faith may not have been as confident, but still they're following. 
God, I'm, I'm taking this one step at a time, but yet, nevertheless, I'm still following you. I may be a little uneasy, but I'm still following you. And nevertheless, either way you trust in God, whether it's confidently running at Him and saying, I am trusting you all the way, or even if it's step by step, it's a God, help me. This next step, help me. This next step, help me. Help me. Either way is a way that God says, I still save by grace. It is still me doing the work. And it shows us that He does the work. He opens Himself to be embraced. And the way is now provided for us to cross through. And that from the point we trust Him and leave the bondage, we're saved by grace. Everything changes. New life is completely different at the other side of the Red Sea for the Israelites. These Egyptians you see now, you will never see them again. Everything will be different. Lastly, why can we be saved? It's because the Redeemer provides. The Lord is salvation. We must see that He is steadfast in His character, but He is salvation in how He he makes Himself available to us. There's one more attribute that we see in chapter 15. I'll quickly go through this. And that is the Lord is celebrated. Yes, I know that word does not start with S. I know my alliteration problem happened there. But it sounds like S, doesn't it? But the Lord is celebrated. And He will always be celebrated. That's a part of His glory. Why is He to be celebrated? What happens here? All of a sudden, Israel burst out with a new song. A new song is written right then, right there. I think that's cool. Because the parts of this song they had never experienced before. Had never seen before. And yet witnessing, having their eyes open to the steadfastness of God and the salvation of God, they cannot but help but celebrate this God who is worthy of praise. They begin singing the whole camp, the whole tribes. And what this tells us is that When it comes to celebrating the Lord, it's not just for a select few. You hear me? Singing a song of praise to God is not for a select few. We help lead and facilitate this here, but I I love what Stephen's heart on this. He he never wants to be just the guy up here just playing and, hey, I'm going to do something and you guys are just going to watch. No, he enjoys and loves seeing people all get involved. Because he recognizes, and we recognize, and the Bible tells us to recognize that every person who is called by the name of the Lord, should celebrate His name. Every single person. There should be no reason if we've ever experienced the love and grace of God that we could ever be silent. The Bible tells us that all of creation is already worshiping the Lord. We're just playing catch-up. But let's do it well. It tells us that this is not just for His people to experience and be a part of, but it's for people. It's for His praise. That He is worthy of praise. That we're to sing about Him. These are details about who He is. We're to sing to Him. We're we're lauding uh, exaltation to Him. We're singing for Him. We want them to know that we are grateful for everything He has done. We are giving Him praise. Because He is worthy of it. But we also recognize that these things shouldn't just be left to uh, whatever we can say about God is, is good. There's some things that are said about God that are simply not true. But these things in this song, they're true. That He is glorious. That He is 
personal. That He is a covenant keeper. That He is the man of war. The warrior. Yes, God is not just safe. He's a warrior. He is unique. He is loving. The attributes of our song should go right along with the steadfast character of God and the provision of what He's provided that says this is why we praise Him. Because of who He is, what He has done, and what He has said. And we can't help but let it overflow as we sing about Him and to Him and for Him. The Bible asks us and presents these things and, and preserves them for us so that we can get a lay of the land. We can see what it looks like to know this God who is, this God who speaks, and this God who does. And when we do it, we're astounded as we sit there and say, wow, I cannot believe that there's someone who is actually absolutely steadfast. No, That's not duplicitous. That's not fickle. But it's constant. I'm amazed as I survey and look at the attributes of who you are that you would reach down to save. It makes you unlike any other deity that's ever been written about. And we see that they are so false and He is so true and good. And it cannot help but lead us to celebrate. This is what it means to have God's intervention in our life. The question is, you come to that encounter. Have you looked, have you stood still and seen the Lord? Because He longs to make His redemption known to you. He's the Redeemer who intervenes in all of our lives. And He invites us to experience the redemption that He alone provides. Let's pray. Lord God, today as we take time to, we take time to worship You and, and we've taken time to hear from Your Word, I pray that uh, in the next few moments as we sing this song that it would be a, a praise declaring who You are and and understanding what you've done to save us. But it'll also be a moment where we are prepared to be launched and deployed from this place. Understanding that now, as people who know your name, who carry and bear your name, God, that there's a world that needs to hear it spoken and seen, to see people that reflect the steadfast, saving, celebrated Savior. Help us, Lord, to do that, for only you can. And let's respond appropriately in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.